Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me Claire Schaefer and Rob Sheffield and Brittany Spanos. And we thought it was a really good time to talk about the entire discography of Fiona Apple and what a discography it is. Her new album, Fetch the Bolt Cutters, may well be the best album of the year so far. It's pretty extraordinary and it's kind of a culmination of what she's been working on since 1996. And you're talking about five albums, all of which I would say are, are excellent. I think, I think my panel would agree. Are, are they all excellent? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Pretty great. Good. Podcast over. Thank you very much. <laughs> so we thought we'd start with Fetch the Bolt Cutters so we don't get into the situation where we don't end up talking about the thing that we most want to talk about. Rob has taught me about going in reverse order, and I think that's a, a good lesson. We learned that uh, most infamously in our Beatles episode where we never got past Ringo. So that, that's what we're always trying to not replicate. Absolute peak proud <laughs> podcast moment. <laughs> so Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Claire reviewed it. I did. You gave it four and a half stars. Or we gave it four and a half stars. You might have wanted to give it five stars. It's no secret that there's institutional mitigation of stars. Would you have given it five stars if it was completely up to you? Yeah, honestly, I would have. I mean, it was it was definitely a tough call just because, you know, how do you review an album that, or rather, how do you rate an album that has not yet gone out into the world? You have no idea how much influence it's actually going to have. And of course, you have to come up with these star ratings before it comes out. But yeah, I would have given it five stars. And I think a lot of people would have agreed with that. And why? I mean, that, of course, basically says it's a perfect album. Why is it a, a perfect album in your estimation? I think it is this perfect culmination of an artist who, right from the get-go, has just been on top of her game, but who has sort of demonstrated that she can take a look back on her career and also acknowledge maybe not her mistakes per se, but ways that she has matured. Like, I think that Fetch the Bolt Cutters is her most self-aware record. You know, she's looking back on how she was treated as a young pop star throughout the late 90s, early 2000s, how she sort of shifted her perception from being this sort of, you know, in the public, this kind of jail baby, kind of uh, over-sexualized figure to being this very, like, reclusive songwriter and just like I think it's a very mature album in the way that she's able to look back on these past experiences and be like you know what I'm not as angry as I was back then I don't have the same relationship that I used to have to other women or to men but I don't regret those feelings like I think it's this interesting complexity that's in this album yeah and she digs back past even as young as she was when she made her debut she digs back past that and starts writing yeah. about about middle school and stuff mm -hmm. i love that whole part of shimiko where she's talking about like you know walking to school and like slapping her like with the riding crop as she's going to like seem tough and then she's like talking about being in class and being bored and like counting the second hand on the clock it's like She's talking about like the way that her mind works and the way that she was like different from the beginning, but it also demonstrates musically how much of a sense of rhythm she has. That's kind of, I think, musically what is most defining to me about Fiona Apple, even more than the piano, even more than her like dynamic voice. It's just the sense of rhythm and cadence and like how she understands the delicacies of those things and how like each like minute detail can change the meaning of a word or like can change the meaning of a song, you know, just right from the get-go, she, like, acknowledges that. And I think that's just such a nice, like, touch to the album. 
Yeah, and I want to dig into individual tracks, but Brittany, I know you were one of millions seemingly who reacted instantly with overwhelming love for this album. What what about it hit you that hard? I mean, when I first heard it, I definitely was telling Claire a lot about this where it's, it feels like her like her brightest and like most upbeat album sonically and lyrically and it is with as much as she digs into a lot of these past traumas and like her relationship with both men and women in her life, her relationship with herself, with the media portrayal, like there is so much brightness and positivity to the album. And I spent a lot of the the week up to its release listening to her first four albums and kind of going back to how much of we associate Fiona with like the sad girl aesthetic in singer-songwriter circles and in sort of pop music and, and rock music. And so it's really fascinating for her to kind of come out of the gate and like make this album that is reflective and nostalgic, but isn't necessarily sullen. It's definitely her most optimistic album to date. And I, I find that Fiona Apple, she comes back to this concept of hope over and over again throughout her career. Like, especially when the pawn, like we can talk about it later, but there's so much like reference to hope and how she's never able to quite reach it in that album. And here it's like, she doesn't even have to really say it, but you get the sense that she's found that sort of closure that she's been chasing for her whole career. And Rob, what were your first impressions of the album and where are you with it now? Yeah, it's great. In some ways, it's sort of a uh, bookend to uh, to When the Pawn Hits the Conflicts from a little over 20 years ago. Uh, very similar. I mean, those are probably my two favorite Fiona albums, but very similar in terms of albums that are marking a, a personal transition and a musical transition. I mean, all five of her albums are so different musically and so different stylistically in, in terms of their tone and their mood. But these are the two albums that are uh, just the most high energy emotionally wise, uh, to be very inarticulate about it in a nonetheless <laughs> Fiona-esque turn of phrase. It's a very aggressive album. I mean, just the way it, it jumps out in the first song, it's a song, it's a very plain spoken and direct album in, in many of the same ways that When the Pond was. I think musically, the comparisons that jumped to my mind turned out to be the comparisons that jumped to, you know, practically everyone's mind, which is that it's like she's become Joni Mitchell multiplied by Tom Waits or vice versa, among many other things. But it is, she's again in a corner of her very own and very much just like sui generis, just one of a kind. Like there's no one quite doing what she's doing. It doesn't really connect in any way to what's, and you can draw connections, but it doesn't deliberately connect in any way to what else is going on in music. And I, I think that kind of speaks for her entire catalog, especially after the debut. She's just carved her own lane and stayed in it. But the sort of radical homemadeness of this record and the percussion-driven elements uh, really stood out for me. And even the, the way the album progresses as you go along uh, in the second half is maybe slightly like less uh, deliberately assaultive than some of the stuff on the first side, quote-unquote side, it's just a, a great album. Claire, what do you make of, it definitely picks up from places where the Idler Wheel left off musically. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the Idler Wheel, similar concept. She recorded that whole album basically with one other person. It was her touring drummer. Um, I believe he also produced the album, but that similarly, it was like a found sound kind of they used pianos, they used guitars, but they also used many, many different like homemade objects for percussion. 
you know, there's um, one song, Periphery, on that album that uses, like, I think it's, like, boots, like, stomping through gravel, and that's, like, the percussion on that whole song. There's, like, ripped paper, you know, all this different stuff that she used for it. And, like, this was a similar concept. She had, I think, a, you know, three other people that she was doing this album with. She had a drummer, she had a, a guitarist, a bassist, um, and then they all did percussion. And for the most part, except for, I think, one recording session that was done in Texas. It was all recorded at her home in Silver Lake. And you can kind of tell because she purposely leaves these like sort of outtakes. She almost uses like the outtakes as like these uh, interludes in between songs. You know, you'll get like room sound and there'll be like a dog barking or, you know, you'll you'll hear like someone from the band being like, oh, do you want to do it this way? Like they're about to start another take. And it's just, it's this nice way of like showing your work that for that particular album, I think is appropriate because it is kind of all about her journey as an artist and her um, sort of coming to terms with like how she actually wants to make the shit she wants to make and not do it any way except her own way. And maybe we should go track by track a bit. The open track, I Want You to Love Me, even the opening line speaks so much as a sort of mission statement to the album that every print I left upon the track has led me here. I've waited many years, every print It's perfect. It's one of those things that shows you how hard she's thought about all this, I think. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very Fiona Apple way of sort of disguising a song about like her relationship to fame, relationship to fans, relationship to her work, kind of putting it in this sort of love song package. And I think I wrote in my review, like, it's very similar to this track from When the Pawn called To Your Love, mm. uh, which is also sort of about her relationship to the public and how... You know, that album, she was talking about kind of the response to her debut title and how she got a lot of hatred for her um, speech at the MTV Awards. And, you know, the fact that she named her album When the Pawn Hits the Conflict, it was like this whole entire poem. So that song was sort of in response to all the criticism that she got then, whereas I Want You to Love Me is more about acceptance, I feel like. It's accepting the fact that, like, she obviously wants people to, like, get something from her work but I think it's much more it's not seeking to please everyone like I love the line where she's like bang it bite it bruise it blast the music like just you know the people that she wants to appreciate her work are the people who are gonna go all the way with it she's not looking to please anyone else right Brittany or Rob any thoughts on this track the opener I mean I just love how I mean that was especially with sort of the reason why I loved it so much is just like this lightness to the album and again in like her optimism like from the get-go like just like hitting you with that it just feels like this like burst of fresh air right away yeah definitely first track as mission statement it's just very sort of direct emotional statement and also music that really sort of defies the sort of demand that the title makes the way it ends with that absolutely awesome sort of vocalese that she just launches into um, <laughs> the part that's absolutely impossible to sing along with just fantastic bit of noise making as mission statement are you talking about the like dolphin sound effect at the end yeah it's amazing it's so good and shamika launched like a million memes a million jokes and a, a lot of appreciation i think i waited till the end of the day to listen to it because i hadn't had the advance and before i listened to the album and it had been out for like 12 hours i had already seen a thousand references to, to shamika shamika said i had potential 
Shamika said I had potential. People were but, trying to find her too. I don't know if anyone was successful, but oh yeah, I think she's the new Becky. Were. We yeah. have her on the phone right now. No, we don't. Um, <laughs> our quest was unsuccessful to find her. But yeah, so this was, you know, this was a, a middle school classmate. And when uh, Shamika said she had potential, it was basically like, it wasn't mean. It was saying like, why are you hanging out with these lame girls? You have potential, right? Is, is that that's sort of the... Yeah, it was like the one person who like treated her nicely. And she actually, I, I believe in the Vulture interview, she had mentioned that she didn't realize that it it was a real person. Like she thought she had made up this person in her head and (laughs) while she was looking back and then she had been emailing with a teacher who confirmed that Shamika was absolutely a real person who was just like really lovely and kind and had reached out to her in this moment. I almost wish she hadn't explained certain things that like uh, Sebastian said, I was a good man in the storm and that kind of, it almost is better when those are, are just like total mysteries, but all good. It's a long tradition with her. Reading the interviews is not a good idea. <laughs> if you're going to listen to the music, you could do one or the other. But in her case, more even than with most artists, it's, it's better to put those aside for maybe a month later. It's her and like Darren Aronofsky. You have to always kind of proceed with caution. <laughs> yeah, that's same thing. Yes, absolutely. Overexposure, overexplaining the songs from the group. Right, because you don't need it interpreted for you for that much. And yes, and, and yeah, like Sebastian said, I'm a good man. A storm is a great line when you think it's sort of nonsense poetry, or, or, but when you know exactly what it means, you're like, eh, but that's okay. And then you can go back to pretending that you don't know what it means. And basically what it means for people who didn't read it is, is it's when she hid her bandmate's weed on her own person, that was what she was told. And she did actually spend uh, a, like a night in jail for that. So she earned the line. She earned the line. But it's an amazing song for a lot of reasons. It's just an unusual subject for a song, like a moment in middle school, you know, like that. It's part of a specifically female experience, but also part of a universal experience as well. Like that kind of negotiating feelings of of middle school is just not, you don't hear that too often, I don't think, in anyone's songs. Yeah, I mean, I would say it is an especially female experience, just especially if you've ever been like, you know, I feel like we have so many narratives in media about like mean girls and how, you know, kids get bullied in school, but we don't necessarily know about like that one random acquaintance that will just like say something that for some reason you just remember for years and years and years. And I think what I love about the song, again, she kind of is using the format of the song to tell that story where the piano will just go into these crazy like hurricane, just chaotic noise and then all of a sudden she'll talk about Shamika and then it, the, the sound goes down and it gets more subdued and it's just this like drum beat that's going on or like this piano beat that's going on. Um, it's just this great way of saying like, or, or rather like showing how just like that one memory can just like bring everything back to calm for you. Going to the title track and I was just talking about the, the line, all the, all the VIPs and PYTs and wannabes like amazing wordplay and the chorus like i think one of the many reasons why people just went insane over this album besides it just being great is everyone's trapped in their house and we have a chorus fetch the bolt cutters i've been in here too long is just beyond perfect obviously fetch the bolt cutters i've been in here too long fetch the bolt cutters yeah i mean that song was the like immediately took me like from the first listen of the album that was the first song that I really loved I mean it's just so cathartic to listen to as she's kind of going through especially that running up the hill line like there is something that's kind of like light at the end of the tunnel 
moment, like all the dog barking, Cara Delevingne's meowing. I mean, that song was like the first one that I was like, oh, this album is incredible. There's so much clarity in that song too. Like it's very matter of fact. And it so obviously comes from, you know, Fiona in her early 40s as opposed to in her early 20s, just being able to kind of have this slight remove from the really sort of tormented place she was in when she recorded albums like When the Pawn or Tidal or any of that. You know, it's her being able to look back and say, you know, this is what I went through and this is how I'm different now. Let's jump to Ladies, which has got to be one of the best tracks on the album. Ladies, 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 take it easy. Wendy leaves me, please be my guest. Do whatever I Brittany and Claire, what, what would you want to say about that song? Ladies, 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 ladies. <laughs> the conjugation <laughs> of the word ladies. Um, <laughs> Reinvented the word ladies. That's <laughs> <laughs> I cannot listen to that song without listening to it on repeat for yeah. at minimum 90 minutes. Like it's like just so, I mean, everything about her vocal performance on that. I mean, the story, like her, she, it's just like bars across the entire thing. Like just like <laughs> literally the best rap song. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> best rapper alive, Fiona Apple. Yeah. I mean, for real. Yeah. That entire part of the, the verse about the dress is just, uh, it's so good. And it's so well told. Yeah. Uh, and like, I, I'm trying to actually find the info on this, but what's kind of interesting about this track is that she didn't actually compose the music for it. Her bassist Sebastian and her guitarist David actually composed like this sort of waltzy backing instrumental for it. And she sort of added lyrics to it, but you wouldn't be able to tell because she just makes it entirely her own. And there's so much control in her voice as she's able to like tell this whole story that mm. you know it's just it's completely Fiona Apple's story. Ruminations on the looming effect and the parallax view and the figure and the form and the revolving door. I mean her, like she's just I mean she's absolutely killing it with lyrics and the, yeah. and, and the bit about the, the bit about the dress is so specific and so great and goes on for <laughs> in such detail for a long time <laughs> when it was left behind with a note like it just it's you know it's it's, it's spectacular. If we're going to pick one or two more from this album to talk about before we move on, why don't you all pick one or two? Oof, that's so hard. Um, <laughs> I, I did, could be three. I, I did like uh, Relay. I mean, the song itself is very, very good, but what I found was interesting about it was that that whole hook is based off of a lyric she wrote when she was 15. Yes. Evil is a relay spark when the one who's burned turns to pass the torch. Evil is a and if you read the New Yorker profile that they did of her, she like talks about how she like would flip back through her old notebooks and like, read it. And like, she's going through it with Emily Nussbaum, the reporter. And she's saying like, oh, like this, this lyric is like kind of embarrassing. Like it, it sounds like a writer trying to be a writer too hard. But the fact that she still put it as like the hook and the title of the song anyway is like, again, it's just kind of her like taking all these different facets of her career and just like, meshing them all together and kind of putting them all in conversation together. Yeah. To actually collaborate on a lyric with one's 15 year old self is just cool in itself, but in the context of the album and some of its themes is, is actually pretty profound. I thought. Yeah. All right. One or two other songs. What do we think? I really love heavy balloon. Mm. I mean, that chorus is, I mean, just like the way her voice sound, I mean, the kind of Fiona, 
guttural rasp that happens on there as she's screaming. I spread like straw or spin like strawberries, I sp- climb spread, like yeah. peas and, yeah. and beans. <laughs> Well, who, I mean, no one else alive would have ever written that chorus. Like, it's impossible yeah. <laughs> to imagine. Phenomenal. That's my favorite hook on the whole album is that yeah. chorus. <laughs> that's definitely not the kind of hook that's written by, like, seven songwriters on, on a, like, in a, yeah. in a songwriting <laughs> camp. I'm thinking strawberries. I'm thinking what's hot right now is strawberries. We need that for the summer. That's going to be perfect for, for a July single. Uh, that's, like, the image of, like, spreading strawberries. Like, you don't usually think of strawberries as this, like, moving thing that, like, spreads across the ground. It's so like visceral and kind of like haunted but that's just what makes it great right she sings it as if that's a normal yeah speech (laughs) and that's something completely insane that she's invented (laughs) you know that phrase (laughs) (laughs) right right that's what that's what's so great about it we're talking about the amazing discography of fiona apple and when you look at it in total it's a really strong argument for taking your time between releases and consistency because it, it's hard to think of anyone of her generation who has such a tight, near-perfect discography. And you're talking about spanning like 24 years, which is, which is nuts. It doesn't feel like that, obviously, but it's 24 years of five albums, 24 years, all great. So, it, I mean, Rob, can you compare to anyone whether of her generation or in some other generation as far as just like that consistency and also like not a ton of music, but all of it pretty killer. Yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal body of work composed over, over a long period of time, but all the albums are so different. There's definitely continuity there, but it's hard to imagine who you'd even compare her to. I mean, I think of a Dylan quote where he once said that his, his music is more, he was asked if he, you know, it was one of those guys who, one of those writers who sit down every day and write, make themselves write. And he said, my music is more confessional than professional. So he couldn't do that. It reminded me of that. And then Fiona in a, a crazy video interview that I bet Rob knows where it came from. I have no idea, but it, it's Quentin Tarantino who she told, <laughs> who she told a story about in the, in the New Yorker, but Quentin Tarantino is interviewing her. It must've been some MTV thing or what, do you know what that, does anyone know what that was from? Uh, uh, that this, this, show on Bravo with like people and their like famous friends? Maybe that's what it is. But anyway, it's like this weird like Quentin just gushing over and actually, you know, asking pretty good questions. And they actually seem to be getting along really well, which is funny given all the shit she understand we talked about him later. But she told him like, first of all, and this was sometime in the early 2000s, she told him, first of all, that she didn't necessarily have to do this for a career. Like she could let it go at any time. Like she didn't see this as her job basically. And she also said that most of her job as she sees it is just sort of like absorbing. And she actually was queuing off Quentin saying that kind of bragging about how easy it was for him to write dialogue, which is really annoying. And that saying it comes from a God satellite, but that she ended up agreeing that most of the time is just kind of priming the satellite and waiting for it to come. And then when it comes, it dumps out. So she's just not, like she doesn't sit down every day and write. She waits till there's actual inspiration and she's certainly not driven by any record business imperatives. But let's jump to the first record title. I was listening to it again. It's the first time I've listened to that album in a long time. I assume some of you have re-listened to it in preparation for this. Where do you stand? I think it's even that is a really great record. Where do you all stand on that? I mean, I, my, I was thinking of my Fiona Apple rankings for no reason <laughs> because they are, I mean, as Rob said, they're all so different each incredible and it kind of like it's funny how much with how much she grows within the span of these albums and given the amount of time in between each and the amount of 
you know, life she kind of looks back on and lives and kind of reflects and distills in such a smart way. I think like title ends up falling last for me, which is like so wacky to say in terms of how much I really like this album. And I mean, talking about like an excellent opening track, I mean, Sleep to Dream is really, really up there for me as one of my favorite Fiona songs. I'll tell you how I feel, but you don't care. I say, tell me the truth, but you don't dare. You say love is a hell you cannot I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, I, 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 love, I love this album. Criminal obviously being like the introduction to Fiona for so many people, including myself, um, and being that type of song that just felt so like shocking with the I've been a bad, bad girl line, <laughs> like when you're a preteen and being like, whoa, what is she talking about? Um, <laughs> it's so good. I do think Criminal and like Shadow Boxer and like Sleep to Dream, these are all like continue to be some of Fiona Apple's biggest hits. But I think also when you look back on title, you do have to remember that like this was coming at the same time as like Alanis Morissette or like like Tori Amos. There was definitely a certain sort of subgenre that you could almost feel Fiona Apple starting to get kind of boxed into, whether it was by the producers she was working with or the label she was on or like just the publicity sort of surrounding her. Um, or just the fact that she was still 17 years old. And by the way, just writing like incredible lyrics for a 17 year old, but like still 17 years old. And so I think title definitely has that sort of sad girl vibe that I think would kind of follow her throughout her career, even though, you know, so much of listening to Fiona Apple's discography is just like getting so many more emotions other than sadness piled on top of you as you go through it. Like I think of this one tweet that came out when Fetch the Bolt Cutters was first released that was like, Fiona Apple isn't a mood, she's the whole like DSM-5. But like I do I do think this album kind of cemented her as this like sad girl. And that's definitely the primary uh, kind of vibe that you get from it. It it was very much before Criminal became a hit and after Criminal became a hit. Mm. It was kind of two different records. Because Criminal on its own, out of the context of the album, for a lot of people that was a that was a revelation of just how funny she was, how sly she was. Uh, how brilliant she was, and it was uh, it was definitely that song sort of breaking out from the rest of the album as a hit definitely changed the way people heard the album and what sounded initially like a you know a, a very typical 1995 1996 smooth jazz cafe internet cafe kind of listening record, um, <laughs> which is one of the many many things it was. Um, I mean. You know, nobody remembers Maloko, but, you know, in 1995, if you were deciding whether Fiona Apple or Maloko were going to go on to be legends, you know, if you were into one of those albums, you were probably into the other one. Okay, this um, is insane because we just talked about Maloko, who I had completely forgotten about two shows in a row because Dua Lipa and I were just talking about it last week. So this is the age of Maloko right now. We're, we're deep into I cannot into tell you how excited I am to hear you and Dua Lipa talking about Maloko. <laughs> Um, but, <laughs> it was most of the episode. Um, there, there are a lot of records that sounded like title on the surface at the time. Yes. Records that nobody remembers now or that people scoff at now because the singers didn't go on to be as famous as Fiona Apple. But it was very much criminal that sort of set it apart from the rest of those records. And, and you know, and after you heard criminal on the radio, you wouldn't think of comparing her to Jewel again. But <laughs> up until criminal, it was customary to link those artists. 
I think it's been talked about a lot. There was a large degree of, of sexism and condescension in a lot of that early press. And some of it based off of misconceptions from the, the criminal video, some of it just based on pure ambient sexism. Rob, do you remember people starting to turn and realize what a career artist she was by the time of, of the second? Because I, I even feel that when the pawn came out, people were already kind of starting to use the word genius and stuff. And certainly by the, by the next one. But how, how do you remember the kind of the shift in perception of people just being like, oh, well, this is really a, a serious artist here? Well, When the Pollen was one of the most absolutely shocking second albums of, of the 90s, a period that had a lot of shocking albums, nobody was in any way prepared for how great When the Pollen was. I don't care what a big title fan you were, absolutely nobody had any concept of how great When the Pollen was going to be. And it was a record that just really shocked people. It was uh, just an, an album that completely like changed the way people... It, thought of certainly of the first album. It, it, it's just such an advance, great as the first album is, really nobody was prepared for it. A real turning point uh, was her Rolling Stone cover story in, in the fall of 1997 with uh, Chris Heath, which was a, a very long, very intense cover story. Definitely one of the best Rolling Stone cover stories of the 90s and definitely one of the ones in all-time history that's changed the public perception of an artist. But that was really the first in-depth interview that she gave where she was telling her story and expressing her thoughts and ideas at, at great length. It wasn't like, you know, the sound bites on MTV that, that people had chosen to giggle at. It, it was uh, her telling her story at length with Chris Heath, who is just an exceptional listener and storyteller. And it was definitely one of those cover stories that changed the way people thought of this artist and changed the level of preparation that they were bringing to the next album. What Brittany and Claire might be too young to remember is that when people first heard the album title before they heard the the actual album, there was a lot of sort of snickering and mockery because there was that little element of people's reaction to Fiona Apple. And then everyone just swallowed that laughter when they actually heard the album. You know, it just also, was like... It, can, it cannot be stressed enough. Everybody's second album in the 90s was a floppity flop, flop, flop. Like, <laughs> right. There's never been an era where people had more iconic debut albums and then a complete round of crickets for the second album. Pick anybody with like a giant, you know, massive, and there's no need to make fun of people by naming names. Pick, pick an de iconic debut album of the 90s, and you've got a second album that people either laughed at or made fun of. A lot of those second albums are now recognized as classics, but there's absolutely no reason anybody expected this to be any different from, say, the Gin Blossom second album. Right. Right. It's the uh, Cleopatra's cat syndrome, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so when people heard that title, it was kind of like the Cleopatra's cat video, you know, like, <laughs> oh, this art, you know, this, it seemed like the overreaching that people often did on their, on their second albums was a, a temptation she couldn't resist. Claire, before we move on, if you had to be put on the spot, because we are putting on the spot, what is your ranking of Fiona albums? <laughs> Can you do it? How would you rank them in order? Okay. Uh, well, it really goes back and forth between Fetch the Bolt Cutters and Run the Pawn as the two. I think they are just so definitive of who she was at that particular time and utilizing every tool that she has in her arsenal. I think that Either Wheel would probably be my next one. Um, mm. I think Either Wheel is like a very, at this point, it's like a very difficult album for me to listen to just because I think it is like her rawest vocally, but it really did kind of 
you know, moving from like when the pond to that album just like gave me such a sense of how dynamic she was as an artist and like her actual like range of what she could do. Like when the pond on its own is incredible, but like just hearing them back and forth, like it, it's incredible just like how much she pushed the boundaries of like what people perceived her genre to be and what people perceived her subject matters to be. Extraordinary Machine, I really, really, really like. And I think it's really cool that she chose to work with like a hip hop producer for that album. And then title, I would probably put last just because her bearings as an artist and trying to figure out like what her actual sound was. Oh, so, so Claire and Brittany would both have title as, as her worst album. Yeah. I mean, when you put it that way, it's very... Yeah. <laughs> her, her, her lowest word. ranked. Her lowest ranked album. Yeah. yeah. But they, they put it last in the rank of excellence, which still means it's good. It's yeah. just, it's all relative. If it was ranking with someone else's catalog, it would be higher. But it's just, you know, something has to be on the bottom. Definitely in the pantheon of great debut albums. But again, this is a, a very extraordinary discography. Right. I was going to say it's interesting. Around the time she released Title, her, her manager, Andy Slater, said that basically she had like no influences. She, <laughs> the only stuff she could name she liked was Billie Holiday and the hip hop of the era. So they, so they kind of just, you know, they just kind of did what, what they could. And I, I'm, I'm always fascinated by that issue of like who her influences are and who she listens to, because she'll say to this day, she doesn't listen to, to that much music, you know? Yeah, she's kept it up. There was actually a video that her housemate Zelda, who's become kind of her like social media manager in a weird way. Um, oh, the, the Florence and the Machine? Yeah, yeah, the Florence and the Machine video. It was like the day after when, the, or the day after Fetch the Bolt Cutters came out, and Zelda just posted this video of Fiona Apple like listening to the new Florence and the Machine song with her dog, and she was like, "Yeah, this is the first new music she's listened to in five years because she hasn't listened to any new music while working on this album." I just thought that was like insane. <laughs> but I mean, if you have to focus, you have to focus. Yeah, it's like I was thinking about what do I know for sure that she, you know, has listened to. And I, I know Elvis Costello because she once like sang an amazing version of I Want You that if, if you've never seen, you have to check out. It's like it's with him playing guitar. I was on some VH1 thing and it's just like mind blowing. And then another Elvis Costello song. And I know she likes Kate Bush and Florence and the Machine and, and jazz. And I don't know. She loves <laughs> the Water Boys. She posted that cover of the Water Boys, Hole of the Moon, like the month before this album came out. Yeah, it's great. It's just so good. It's so fascinating to just try to assemble like what, you know, what does she like? What does she listen to? But I I think part of it is she just, like I said, she really is just in in her own world. But let's move to Extraordinary Machine, which, you know, how much is that colored for you all? The fact that we have two versions of it, the leaked version and then the final version, the John Bryan version, and, and then the sort of Mike Elizondo rework. For me, it's very strange. I have both versions in my head. They both exist. I actually like both. I know a lot of people prefer the John Bryan versions, but how does that work for you all? Or is that even not a factor in how you perceive that album? I mean, Extraordinary Machine is definitely my favorite Fiona album. Yeah, it's it's the first one I heard in full because it came out like when I was in junior high. And I remember that was like the first Fiona album I had like listened to just in full. I I don't think I had listened to Tidal, um, at least not that much before then. And I don't really remember too much around it. I just remember Mike... The Mike Elizondo version is definitely the one that I have and have loved, but just, I mean, her voice, I think that's like her, her best album vocally. And she's just, just sounds so brilliant on it. And the song, Oh Well, is like one of the greatest big booming power breakup ballads of all time. And, you know, I I love a big booming 
breakup power ballad. So it's <laughs> <laughs> really. <laughs> yes, you do. Yeah. I definitely think that where the Mike Elizondo version shines, it is some of her best work to date. Like I think Oh Well definitely is like my like in my top five of her songs. I also really like Red, 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 which I didn't used to be that into when I first heard it, but it's become this kind of like oddly subdued song in the Fiona Apple catalog that's not really like anything else she's ever recorded. John Bryan's one of my favorite producers, so I do love certain moments of that version. I love just the little flourishes that he can do with her work and just kind of like these little like vaudeville touches that he'll add without it being too corny. Mm. Um, you know, it's part of the reason why When the Pond is so great, but I think the version that she decided to release, like, that is the definitive version. Rob, where do you fall on that? That's very interesting. It's very interesting to hear it cited by Brittany as, as her uh, top, top FA pick. It's, uh, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know it was anybody's favorite. How does it compare, I guess, Extraordinary Machine and, and Idler Wheel, I think of those two as bookends as well. Like, they're such um, naughty albums in K-N-O-T-T-Y. Something I love about both of those records is how uh, troublesome they are musically and how complex they are. Part of her musical vocabulary is super jazzy, super sophisticated. It always fascinated me that her sister is a cabaret singer, Maud Maggart. It speaks, I think, to the kind of music that must have been in their house growing up. You know, I, th- I think that you can kind of see like the, the tree branching out into those two, into those two like branches. <laughs> very, very articulate, also very articulate. But for me, truly, it was revelatory when I learned about Maud Maggart because I was like, oh, that explains a lot about Fiona and the chords she uses and the way her, her musical mind works. But let's move on to the to Idler Wheel, which Rob has already started talking about. Claire, why don't you kind of put that in, in its place in the catalog? You've already talked a little bit about that album. I mean, I think the last thing you could do to that album is put it in its place because it is the <laughs> unruly album I've ever heard. It is like even more than, you know, metal albums. It is just like, you know, I think so much of how her voice has evolved since Tidal and how... There was a huge leap from title to when the pawn where her voice just got really like she w- allowed herself to get very like scratchy and sort of like hoarse in some of her vocalizations and like she allowed herself to kind of do a lot of this very emotive stuff that was almost a little too like harsh but that actually made that album sound amazing and then she just goes kind of all the way on either wheel and I, like I said there's some songs that are very difficult to listen to not really for like an auditory reason but because they're just there's just so much passion put into these songs that it feels like her sort of rawest, angriest record in a lot of ways. It's sort of amazing to me that she did fetch the bolt cutters right after this, because this almost feels like, in retrospective, kind of an exorcism. Like, I think of uh, Left Alone as being the definitive track, just because it does kind of start off as this sort of loungy, like, cabaret-esque, like, you know, kind of rompy song. And then it goes into this like very sort of torch ballad section. And then it goes into just like her like full throated, like screaming, like, how can I ask anyone to love me if all I do is beg to be left alone? You know, it is kind of like showing you all the different signs of Fiona Apple just in like a few minutes. Well said. You made your major overtures when you were showing over And I was still doing cuddle rather than the more. Unruly is the perfect description. Yes, that really like hits it on the head with that album for me. 
it's funny. I do think Hot Knife, which I think is the last track. Yeah, it's the last track on the that flows very nicely into the next album, which is it's always nice when it works that way. It flows almost directly into uh, Fetch the Bolt Cutters in a way, sonically. She's always thinking a few moves ahead. <laughs> she had when the, the whole pawn hits the conflicts, she thinks <laughs> like a king. Rob, I feel like you're teasing us with being able to recite that entire title from your head. Uh, time is an issue here. Um, <laughs> it's very interesting to hear you guys talk about Extraordinary Machine, and I, I got to go back and listen to that one again. Part of it is that's the first one that I listened to after, it's the first one that came out after I became a Steely Dan fan, when I was very much not a Steely Dan fan for her, her 90s records. So it gave me a lot of perspective on her music that I didn't have before. It's, it's funny that you say that, Rob, because I had a similar journey, but even later, and it was, just, it was not just Steely Dan, but it was like a whole openness to sort of jazz and that kind of harmony. And for me, once when I crossed that barrier, I liked whole new aspects of Fiona's music. And it's probably, you know, it is sort of that, that thing. I, I wonder whether she ever listened to any Laura Nero, because Laura Nero... Donald Fagan told me was actually a huge influence on the jazz chords of Steely Dan on their use of like naughty harmonies. So it's just an interesting, anyway. That's very um, interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, no, neither did I. Don't, I'm not sure he'd ever, I, he just was in a revelatory mood. I'd never heard him say that before. Has, um, has she denied listening to Nina Simone? Is that something she, she says she didn't listen to? I don't know, Clara. I don't know if she ever denied it, but I would suspect that, I mean, there were so many comparisons between her and Nina Simone earlier in her career that were sort of not unfounded, but definitely were kind of just like, well, I've heard of a jazz singer and that's Nina Simone. And she's, <laughs> you know, and I would say like she's gone in a very different direction than Nina. So if she was dismissive of it, I, I don't blame her. I think they're di very different artists. Yeah, that doesn't feel like a completely apt comparison and yet in some ways very apt. But anyway, we have done our best to represent, at least take a peek at the Fiona Apple catalog. And thanks to Claire Schaefer, to Rob Sheffield, and to Brittany Spanos. And that is today's show. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we actually are nominated for a Webby Award. So please go and vote for Rolling Stone Music Now in the Webby Award. There is a part of the contest that is voted on by the people. And it, you are a people listening to this. So please go and vote for us. It's really appreciated. And as always, thanks for listening. Please stay safe out there. And we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.